Hello, and welcome to the Determined People podcast, where people openly share their stories along with their experience, strength, and hope. You know, we all have struggles, periods where we need almost superhuman strength to pull us through. It's my hope that if you're in the middle of a storm, even to the point of hopelessness, you think, if they did it, so can I. Our guest today found herself at 30 years old, needing to make some changes in her life. So, you know, most people might get a pet, join a gym, or just change jobs. Jennifer Benson moved across the international date line to Kuwait to teach English as a second language. Now, what's really important for you to know is this. Jennifer had never been much of a risk taker, so moving across the planet threw her straight into what I might call the discomfort zone. But in the discomfort zone, that's where growth begins. She's written a book, and we'll tell, she'll tell us more about it in the, in the release date. It's called Beautiful Possibilities, and I love the title. So welcome to the Determined People podcast, Jennifer. Hi, hi, John. So nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Well, I'm glad you're here. So let's start off with um, you have a little sister that was always kind of the instigator of uh, doing risky things, including getting you to go on a backpacking trip. Is that correct? Yes. How did she get you to – tell me, tell us about when she first proposed the idea of you coming to Kuwait, what went through your mind? Well, you know, I think the first thing I thought of is, um, you know, I thought, wow, I'm doing okay back here in upstate New York. But, you know, the thought of it was exciting, but then I kind of thought about it a little bit more, and I thought, can I really do that and make that big of a leap? And it was such a big leap that – it did make me stop and question if it was something that I truly wanted to do. And it was such a big risk. So I, I, I had to really stop and think about it, as, as exciting as it was. <laughs> How long did it take you to make the decision once, um, uh, once she proposed it to you? Well, I think at that point I asked the universe, God, or whatever you would like to um, call it, um, just for some signs because I was excited before she had, I remember she had sent home postcards and things at places that she had gone to. And, and I was really um, happy for her, but also I was moved by it. And I actually felt more alive just looking at those postcards and those pictures. And so I asked the universe for some signs, uh, you know, and I sent in my resume. I'm like, okay, I'm going to let go, let God and just see what happens. I don't have to make a decision now, but if they accept my resume and offer me a position, then I will worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you got the position, and then off you go to Kuwait. Now, what was that like when you first got there? Was it a culture shock? Yeah, it was. You know, right when you get into the airport, you know, it's probably over 100 degrees at night. Uh, you know, I landed at 11 o'clock at night, and it was still – it felt like there was somebody was putting a hairdryer up to your face, you know. Um, but then you get into the airport and everyone's wearing, you know, the black and, you know, the bias for the women and the pistachios, the white pistachios for the men. And and you realize you really truly are, you know, somewhere else. You know, when I arrived at night, I couldn't quite see everything. But throughout that week that followed, I was immersed in a lot of school activities, getting to know the school, meeting other new teachers that came from other different countries, um, you know, and just going out to... Um, dinner with all these new people because they, um, you know, become your family because you don't have your family anymore. So they, um, you know, they become, you know, they fill in that role as family. So the school was very adamant about getting to know them, establishing bonds with your coworkers, and 
getting some things set up for your apartment. And the school pays for your apartment, and, you know, and it's very nice, but they also give you a little bit of settling in money so you can go and fix it up. I remember my superintendent, Noreen, called it fix up your cave. (laughs) (laughs) But she wanted us to have a really sacred space where we would feel completely comfortable because there is so much of a culture shock, and she wanted Mm -hmm. it to be. So it's just a lot of outings, a lot of dinners and things like that, just bonding time. Sure. Is Kuwait, is it a safe place for a young woman? I think it is for the most part. There were times when I went on a lot of walks, and I think people over there, like I know I came across some men that would whistle or, excuse me, make comments and stuff, but I was, I never really felt at danger. I never felt like I I couldn't go anywhere, and I didn't have to follow the, um, there wasn't really much of a dress code. You didn't have to wear the black abaya. You could just wear things below the knee, and your shoulders were covered. So, yeah, there were times when I'd go for a walk to go get groceries, and I'd take a taxi back to my apartment, or I'd walk to get my nails done, or walk to the mall, take a cab back. So there was a lot of that that went on, and I'd walk to school because it was probably a quarter of a mile, which was nice. So I never felt really at, um, threatened at any time. I really didn't. You mentioned that uh, getting to know your coworkers and all was kind of, like, kind of like your new family. Speaking of family, your sister left. Yeah, after one year, she fulfilled her two-year contract. She's like, yep, two years is good. I'm going to go back home. So that second year, I was without miss. And, it, you know, and I was a little bit scared about leaving or about staying there, but I knew I did not want to come back home to New York. And I, that was the one thing that I knew where going home felt more stifling. It felt more suffocating, um, you know, just because I felt like in my mind I was going to miss out on some opportunity. And I, I, I did like the overseas life. It was starting to grow on me a lot. Yeah. Even without my sister, I was willing to be like, okay, I, I'm, I'm here and I want to keep doing this. Well, seeing that you, um, uh, we're talking about you might miss out on something. It, it goes right along with the title of your book, Beautiful Possibilities. Right. Yeah, right. it's very, very fitting. So then you met a guy. Yeah, and my sister was a middle school French teacher. Uh, we taught at um, international schools, private, and she went home after her one year with me. She did her two years. When she left, somebody filled in and took her place, and he was from British Columbia. So that was David, uh, and David and I got to know each other, and we were friends probably for the first few months of school, and then we started, you know, dating, and, you know, three years later, we got married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in between there, you also, uh, you experienced the tsunami of December 2004. Tell us about that day. Sure. Well, David and I, um, after only one year of dating, we went to Thailand, and we were um, in the southern Thailand where all the islands are. We were in the um, province of Krabi. It's called Krabi. And we happened to sleep late that day. I believe it was the day after Christmas. And we had been going, getting up early and going kayaking all the other days. It was just something to do, and you wanted to get up early before it got too warm out. And um, But that particular day of the tsunami, we ended up waking up a little bit later than normal, hurried down to the beach and we found the breakfast place and we were sitting there having breakfast and David got up soon after and went over to a dive shop uh, that was right on the beach as well and wanted to inquire about a diving trip. And at that time when he was walking over, I noticed people were headed to the beach 
and that the and I thought there was like a beached whale. I thought somebody was hurt. Everybody that was in the area was were just all walking slowly, as if looking very puzzled um, at the water. And then I happened to look out the water, and the water had been like sucked back out into the ocean and all the boats, those wooden tie boats with the motor on the back, they were all stranded on the shore. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. I didn't know. None of us knew that it was a tsunami. We really didn't. I mean, I'm from upstate New York. We don't have a lot of tsunamis here. (laughs) And I just don't remember anything about learning about tsunamis, nothing. So I have to say I was pretty ignorant about it. And um, you know, so people were walking out and there were Thai people that also had never had tsunamis and they were walking way out where the boats were stranded. It's just like the more, it's like the more they walked out, the more they were trying to figure out what was going on. And then uh-huh. I felt some sense of alarm, like this isn't right. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not right. And then I kind of heard some crying behind me and there were two Thai waitresses hugging each other and crying. Like I said, I think it. It was just like this premonition, like we all knew something bad was going to happen, you know. And uh-huh. basically right after that, you know, David finally came out of the dive shop, thank God. And he was, of course, taking pictures of the whole thing um, because he didn't know what was going on either. So eventually what happened within a, within a matter of minutes, the water had sucked out. It was building like a wall way out there. So that it was almost getting higher and higher and higher. And people were still headed out toward those waves. And what ended up happening is when the water then sucked out, there was um, a a release of three major waves. So the first wave was starting to come in. And I have a picture of that on my website, but it was the last picture that we took. Basically, we still didn't know what it was. So the wave was starting to come in. And luckily at that moment, the dive instructor came out of the sh- out of her shop and she told us all to run. She goes, run, it's a tsunami, run, you got to get out of here, run. And she was screaming. Huh. I think she was the only one that knew anything of what was going on. And she hadn't come out of that shop at that time. I mean, these things move up to like 500 miles an hour, I found out. Um, so where we were, though, we were kind of landlocked. So there were big islands on each side of us. So the, I think that might have slowed it down a little but. We ran for higher ground, and, you know, um, and that's basically what happened. But thank God for her because we still never had any clue as to what was happening until she said something. Did some people not run when she was yelling at them? I don't know. I think, I know, not at first because she was on the beach, and there were some people that were so far out there, out into the sea, checking out where the boats were stranded and, and just going out as far as they could go. It, to me, it just still blows my mind that they were doing that. But I think they were truly puzzled, truly like wondering, because they had never had a tsunami. So especially the Thai people had no idea. We didn't have any idea as expats visiting, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what happened to them, to be honest. And, uh, you know, and even as we were running, I could hear screaming. I could hear things breaking and it sounded almost like a train coming in like this uh, like siren type noise where you know you just are afraid to look behind you because you just don't know what's going on and if I looked behind me I think it would have slowed me down I think I would have been so frozen with paralyzed with fear and even as it was I was trying to get up this mountain path where our hotel was way up in the mountain thank god it was so we kind of had this path that everybody used to get up to the mountain so we were running on that and at one point, I just felt so frozen with fear. I'm like, what's the point? 
you know, I think I, I really truly felt that I wasn't going to make it and that I was just going to be overtaken with water or whatever. And I told David to go on without me, you know, and um, I just didn't, I, my legs weren't working and he grabbed a hold of my hand and he's like, you're going, you're going, go. And, you know, luckily we made it up there, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did make it because otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation, but there's a lot right. of reasons. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you made it. So you guys ended up back, you know, after, I guess you stayed up there for a week while the, you know, the effects of the tsunami were being dealt with. Got back to Kuwait and then eventually moved to Qatar. Tell us about yeah. about that because that's kind of when your disillusionment started to occur. Yeah, you know, I, I moved to Kuwait, you know, going on, I think I was 31 by the time I finally moved over there and, you know, going on 32. And then I think around the time that I, my first year of Qatar, basically what happened is we had a friend that started that we worked with in Kuwait that moved to Qatar and he was making double the salary. There was all these wonderful benefits and the housing was better. And typically teachers, when we're working overseas, they tend to move around a lot at different schools, always looking for that better deal, always looking for Mm -hmm. a better package financially. And we thought, you know, we've been in Kuwait for eight years, which is much, much longer than most people stayed. And I think we went there to obviously get an improvement on our retirement and our salary and benefits. So we moved down there and it was along that line where I was also turning 40. And I think I remember my that first year in Qatar going out for my 40th birthday and I was kind of in an area that was the main city of Doha. It was really far out there, out into the more of the country area, I guess you could say desert area. And I was at a little Indian restaurant celebrating my 40th, and I just was not feeling it. I was not feeling happy, and I was really questioning, okay, is this – I'm not really enjoying it. Granted, I'd only been teaching for about a year, uh, a month at this new school, but I wasn't feeling guitar. I wasn't feeling, like, um, the school, and I thought, okay, maybe I just miss Kuwait. Do I miss Kuwait? Do I miss home? Am I homesick? Is it international life? Like, I really didn't know what it was. But yeah, that first year was quite rough. Yeah, I thought it was you know, a lot of, because it's Middle East. I'm like, okay, Kuwait moving to Qatar. It's not like we moved to China or somewhere where it's so different the culture. We thought it would be so similar, you know, and that would be an easy move. But it really wasn't. Well, there were some differences. I, I you know, I, you'd shared with me on the prayer interview that you could actually buy alcohol in Qatar, but you had to have your employer's permission. Yeah, yeah, and Kuwait was a dry country, so I lived there for eight years with no alcohol, never missed it. And then, and then in Qatar, at some of the nicer, bigger hotels, they would serve alcohol, and um, and also they had a huge warehouse, not huge, but quite big warehouse owned by Qatar Airways, where you could buy alcohol, but you had to have a written note from your employer <laughs> that it was okay to purchase. And you couldn't purchase more than one-third of your salary every month, so I didn't really have to worry about that. <laughs> I thought that was crazy. Um, it's funny they had to put that in there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe people abused it. But, yeah, it was kind of crazy. And you had to get an ID with your picture on it, and you had to wear it going in there to buy the alcohol. Yeah, and the alcohol was so, so expensive. It was like three or four times the price which is, I guess, understandable, but, yeah. I remember you told me that that uh, um, that, that the uh, you, you, you were not allowed to spend more than one-third of your salary, and I thought there's got to be a story that caused them to, to pass that law. I'd love to know that story. 
Yeah, some one employee probably wrecked it for everybody. I mean, we were making seventy grand a year tax free each. So That's if you're if you're spending that much money on alcohol a month, I mean, I can't even imagine <laughs> who must have like ruined it for everybody. But I guess I don't know. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I never found out. <laughs> so you, but you began to isolate from your friends and coworkers and and. You actually started to, to do some self-medicating with alcohol. Yeah, I did. You know, and I would do it on the weekends mainly. We would have a few parties and, you know, I remember David and I buying a few bottles of wine, you know, just to have on hand if we had friends over, you know, just for a little small gathering. Or we would go to other people's houses and there was always wine and there was always beer. And, you know, and I think after a while, because I had lost interest in a lot of things that I really loved, and I remember, I just, you know, I love to write, and I love to, you know, exercise and do all these things, and I think, and I love to walk outside and be in nature, but, you know, eventually, I, I, I felt the lack of nature in the Middle East, it wasn't really the kind of nature that I was craving, which was back home, and I also felt the need to drink more on the weekends to numb the feelings of homesickness and stuff that were constantly coming up. And I remember David saying, Jen, you can be happy anywhere. If you want to be happy here, you can, you can be happy here if you really wanted to be. So I tried to do Reiki. I tried to get trained for Reiki and I tried to get read self-help books. I was drinking to, to numb my feelings. I was thinking about going on medication, like to numb the, you know, the anxiety I was feeling about, you know, wanting to go back home, but not wanting to leave David. So yeah, I was turning to alcohol a lot more than ever, which was crazy because I lived in a dry country before and I didn't even miss it. But now I was like clinging to it um, just as a way to escape, you know, and and to not deal with the feelings that I had of wanting to go back home to New York again. How long did this go on? Probably around the, uh, I think the last couple of years of my time there. So you know, the feelings of wanting to go back home and everything, I, you know, and I, I think I kind of knew that if I went home, David wouldn't come with me and that our marriage might be over because of it. And I didn't want to make that choice. So I stayed on for four more years. So I think by the time my last two years came about, I was drinking a lot more. I would go to the pool. I would fill up a big, huge, um, like a 32-ounce bottle, like a drinking bottle, and fill it up with wine, you know, and sit by the pool and just numb myself, you know. And I just tried to make myself feel better and not have to think about going into work. Because my whole life revolved around the school. And the school was okay. It's just everything revolved around school, and I felt quite dead. You know, my mm-hmm. friends were from work. David and I worked together in the same department. I, when I, If I did exercise, I exercised at school after work. You know, so really, you know, it was a quite a stagnant life that I was living, and then alcohol was a great way for me to just not have to think about it, not have mm-hmm. to think about my feelings about being homesick and missing my parents and missing my nature and my seasons back home in upstate New York. So I just felt like, okay, this is my life now, and I guess this is how I'm going to deal with it for now, you know. You're one of, the, one of the fortunate ones because that is a self-defeating cycle that people can get in, and yeah. in their head, they believe that, that they'll never get out of that rut. They they almost mm-hmm. become they become hopeless about that. Um, you you discovered a book, feel the fear and do it anyway. How did you find that book? Well, one day I just got uh, desperation. I was trying to read some self help books that would make me feel 
happier, you know, as David was always saying to me. Um, so I felt like, okay, well, maybe I need to read some books to help myself here and, and try to make peace with where I am and um, who I am. And um, so I found that book. The title, I guess, really struck me, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, because I was at that point, I think it was my last year in Qatar, I felt like, okay, maybe I need to go home, but how would I ever make that choice? I'm not brave enough to make that choice to leave David behind. I, I just don't think I can make that choice. So when I found that book, it kind of gave me a little bit of hope because I had a lot of fear about, like I said, making the choice. And I think it was just the title that really struck me. And some of the things that Dr. Susan Jeffers said in the book about whatever happens, I will be able to handle it. Just like the tsunami, just like all those years of living abroad, just like everything I've ever done in life, really, when I look back on it, I've always handled it some way, some shape, some form, somehow. And I think it just gave me hope that whatever I decide to do, I'm going to handle it somehow. What you just said about no matter what happens, you'll find a way to handle it. I mean, that's one of those guideposts from God. And it speaks very clearly in in your story. Um, You had shared with me that you had were at a point where you finally got to, you said, do you either need to lose your life in Qatar and David or run the risk of losing yourself. Right. And that was very poetically stated. But then the, the squares that are, are part of the Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway book really showed you how to put your life back together. Can you walk us through that? I would love to. So um, basically what happened was when I was reading the Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway book, Susan Jaffers talked about your squares, your, your life. How whole is your life? And she talked about these nine areas that we have in our lives where we put in all of our time and effort and energy. And those squares give us nourishment in return. It's how we feel fulfillment in life. It's our purpose, basically. All nine of those squares are our purpose. So I looked at my squares, and I'm like, I can't fill my squares. You know, I had maybe four or five. And like I said, everything was around work. David, work, working out at work, my job. And then maybe grocery shopping and getting nails done or going out to eat. It really wasn't a quite you know, a very fulfilling life. So like I said, I looked at that and I realized that by the time I left Qatar, my values were very different than when I started. So when I started, I wanted to pay off college loans. I wanted to save up money for a down payment on a house. I wanted to travel into the world and have adventure. So by the time I left, my values were family, missing family, missing nature, missing community, because at times you could feel quite invisible being overseas. You don't have your spot, so to speak, you know. So I was missing all those things that really meant a lot to me. And after a while, I just wasn't willing to give them up anymore. It was like um, it just was a non-negotiable thing. So when I came back home, slowly I was able to find so much more fulfillment you know, from my squares. I was able to really bring in the things I, that were aligned with my values and my real authentic self at that point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the squares, which are family, work, relationships, friends, hobby, leisure time, alone yeah. time, personal growth, and contribution, th- those, those really struck me as a great way to live what we might call a, 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 you know, balance is a hard one because I don't think really any of us are balanced, but it does show you the different holes that might be uh, in your heart that you need to fill. Right. And when you take a, take a daily inventory, and you had shared with me that you still 
uh, take a look at the squares and you journal about them. Is, is, have you added any squares or deleted any? I added things over time. So when I first came back home, I added family because I lost, you know, David chose to stay behind. Um, so I lost my David, you know, but I ended up gaining family, community, you know, nature, um, you know, and I had these squares that I really, like I said, couldn't compromise anymore. And what ended up happening, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where you think of that triangle where all your needs come from, and the very bottom, you know, you have that sense of security, you have that sense of safety, you have this sense of, you know, a foundation that you're trying to build yourself. And the more I built that, um, you know, the more I felt like I could add more squares in. So eventually I filled in my middle square is my spiritual practice. It's my meditation in the morning. It's my affirmation. It's my prayer. So from that square, all the other squares benefit. So then I, that was my foundation. So then I was able to add in the writing. I started looking at my journal from overseas. I'm like, hey, maybe I could write a book about my decision to go overseas, what it was like, and my decision to come back home, that full circle, you know. And, yeah, so I think the more, you know, as time goes on, you get more curious about things. I think once that foundation is set, for me at least, I was able to get more curious and more risk-taking and, find more things that I really loved and enjoyed to add to my squares. And I didn't mm-hmm. have a guy for the longest time. I think I was home from 2015 and David and I finally, you know, we were long distance and we tried to make it work for four years off and on, mostly off. By 2019, he asked for a divorce. So for four years, I didn't have a, a guy, so to speak, on my squares. My squares were nine squares they were flourishing they were I was making goals I had routines I was risk-taking I was in a really good place and I looked at my nine squares I'm like oh my gosh this is my purpose on life every one of these nine squares I think that's great because uh, filling those squares you know culture tells us that our identity is tied up in in what we do it's not who we are those squares really define who we are as individuals. That, that's our true identity, is how those yeah. squares are, you know, individually and collectively come together. That's, that's who we are. Right. Now, you have this thing called the ding. What is the ding? <laughs> well, I got that, that affirmation. It was from Louise Hay. Of course, when she came out in the 80s, I was like going off mm-hmm. the power, so I was not ready for her wisdom at that time. But I found a quote by her, and it said, I, I trust my inner ding. And the inner ding is really like your inner voice. It's your wisdom. It's, I, I call it my God voice, universe voice, but it's something that keeps moving you forward in life and wants the best for you and has your back. And I think that voice kicked in for me way back when I was teaching in upstate New York before I moved overseas. Something that doesn't feel right in life. It's this, uh, this voice that keeps coming at me, it starts as a whisper, it gets louder, so I'm not fulfilled, I don't know if I want to do this the rest of my life, something's missing, okay, God, what are the signs? Show me the signs. And that's how the inner, um, inner ding keeps getting louder and louder. I see the signs, opportunities come my way, the green lights are all lining, you know, oh my gosh, I have this opportunity in my lap, I think I'm going to do it, what do you think, God, show me more signs. I mean, it just... And, you know, and it never left me alone. And I could have said no. The same thing happened when I was ready to come back home. All the signs started coming into play. And I, I, so it becomes where a point where you just, I couldn't ignore it anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, so I think that inner ding, same thing, the inner ding came on when I started writing again. Maybe I should start to write. So it just comes on in, at these moments in life where I think I want bigger and better. I just want different, and I want to feel more alive. I want to feel more like the real me, and I know something's wrong, something's off, and I'm going to follow through and see where life decides to take me and be trusting and open to that. Tell us about beautiful possibilities. Oh, sure. So I looked at my journal articles all throughout my time being overseas for like 13 years. And I thought, you know, there could be a story here. And just especially for women, you know, about or anybody really and of any age about that inner ding voice. And, you know, way back in 2001, something wasn't right. You know, it starts with that voice and to be able to. I think the biggest thing is taking these risks that are so much bigger, following some type of divine plan for your life that I never would have dreamed of this life for myself. My sister says she wouldn't have either. Um, you know, this that there, the universe has such a bigger and better plan for us than we can ever imagine if we are just willing to take that leap off the cliff. But just to trust that, you know, we're going to be supported in life. And when I went overseas, one thing in my book I wanted to point out and even when I came back home again, I didn't have all the steps planned out. I only knew that I wanted to go overseas, and that was it. So I'd only, I thought for initially I'd only go over for a year or two. I ended up staying 13, but I didn't have that whole thing played out. I didn't have all the steps. I didn't have a guarantee in life that this was even going to work. I just knew that I'd rather go than stay behind. And then when I came back home again, the only thing I knew was what I didn't wanted. I followed my inner ding, and I knew I didn't want to be abroad anymore, but I didn't know what I wanted. So I came home and had to start all over again without a husband and without a job. But I trusted. I just trusted that that was where I was meant to be, and it was okay. And then the universe kicked in again and had this big, huge plan for me that I couldn't have imagined if I just take the leap, you know? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's just how life, just what life was like over there through the lens of being an expat and a woman and making these big decisions and trusting life and watching it unfold. And, oh, wow, here I am. <laughs> you know, after we spoke the first time, um, it, it stuck with me, and I've thought about this daily since, and that is the, 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 what you said about running the risk of losing yourself if you yeah. didn't act. And that's where the determination comes in because – it's a it's it's one risk to get on an airplane and fly to Kuwait to go teach English as a second language, knowing you have a sister there. It's another risk to leave what you've spent the last dozen years doing, go back home, as you said, you have your tail between your legs. You know, you felt like you had failed. You hadn't failed, but you didn't feel like a success. And then start rebuilding your life step by step or square by square. And it's yeah. a great story. It's it's a great experience and a lot of strength and and hope in there. So I have one one last question for you. Well, actually, two last questions. I'm sorry. One is, is your sister still encouraging you to take risks? <laughs> Missy was the one that brought me overseas in '98 when uh, when we went to France on a Eurorail trip, and I was I can't believe I went over there. I never flown, and I went on a Pakistani airline over to France, and and we were there for the World Cup, which was not. And then with this overseas thing, but she's back home now. She was working in China and she just came home this past year. So she encourages me to continue to 
have that confidence in myself. She believes in me. You know, she's very good about being a cheerleader for me and as I try to be for her as well. So we just have that kind of relationship. She's an Aries. She's got Aries the Ram, you know. They are strong. They're headstrong. You know, they just burst through life with this energy and, you know, motivation. And she is like my wingman, you know, and and luckily, and I have these special people in my life. They're my people. I call them my tribe, but they're my people. Mm -hmm. There really isn't anyone in my life that um, gets me down or that, you know, um, I guess that, you know, I've really, I think basically those people have kind of fell away have fallen away. Um, you know, I think the people that I have in my life really support me as I do with them. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, one, one truth is that my, my psychotherapist has said to me, and, and at the time I, I didn't really believe it, but as, uh, as years have gone by, I see it to be true. The healthier that I become mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, the more healthy people I will attract into my life. And that wow. is true. Yeah, that is true. It's almost like you're, your decisions about who you hang around with and who you spend your, your time with become more well thought out. Yeah. I'm not, that doesn't even really encompass it. One, one, one last thing. When is Leveling the book coming up. out? <laughs> I call it leveling up. I know it sounds horrible, but you are, you expect better in life. You expect the best. You, you're happier. You attract those happy people. You are more positive. You attract those positive people. And that's what we want. There's nobody really in my life that trips me up. You know, there used to be, let me tell you, there used to be. But it just seems like they've kind of fallen away. I don't know how, but they just, you know, we just stopped keeping in touch. And, but yeah. Well, because you have gotten healthier in all those areas as well. Right. When does the book come out? Well, later on this year, I'm, I'm imagining I'm sometime after around the fall, so I would say like October, November, December, around that time. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it, and I want to say thank you for coming on the Determined People podcast. Your story is one that, that is what inspires me, and I'm already a pretty inspired guy, but, but um, <laughs> there's, so, there's, so much, there's so much there where you leave, you take a risk when you're not a risk taker, and then, again, you decide that you're going to go find yourself again, and you did. Yeah. I think back to so many people who – don't take that leap of faith and they end up living just miserable lives and they're not living fully living. They're just simply existing. And I think you're going to touch the hearts of those people. So oh, thank you so much. And you have a website as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, www.jenniferbensonauthor.com. It's B-E-N-S-O-N. Yes. And the same, for, same for Facebook. It's Jennifer Benson author. Okay. Jennifer, thank you for coming on. I look forward to seeing what God does with your life because I think it's going to be outstanding. Oh, thank you so much, and thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye.